that's, it's a lot of fun uh, to, to sit around and plan and prepare all these different Sundays that we're going to do in July of worship through the ages and the different eras of music. We hope you will join us throughout the course of this month and enjoy uh, that journey as much as we've enjoyed planning it and thinking about it. So, uh, but it, as Caroline said earlier, it's, it's not really possible without a great group and capable uh, musicians and leaders. So we're grateful for them and their leadership this morning and look forward to all the different eras that are upcoming over the next several weeks. If you are a guest or a visitor, uh, hopefully that was made clear to you through the course of your time here. You've come on a good Sunday, not only when we're singing uh, old-time religion songs, but you also came for the sermon on politics. So great job. You chose a great Sunday to be here with us, uh, which it fits because it is 4th of July weekend. Happy 4th of July weekend, everyone. Uh, I hope you all have some great plans over the next few days as you gear up to celebrate our nation's independence. Here's, here's my opening question for you as it comes to uh, the 4th of July and our subject for today's message. What does it mean to you to be an American? Uh, what, what is that <clears throat> identity, excuse me, <clears throat> of being an American, celebrating that identity, the, our nation's independence? What does that mean to you? How do you approach it uh, throughout the course of a weekend or a week like the one that we're about to enjoy as a nation? I know for me, uh, when you think about the 4th of July, there's so many uh, positive feelings and experiences with it that have shaped my view of what it means to be an American, what, what it means for me to, to celebrate this. I think back to all the different ideals that I learned at a young age and the many of the ideals that we'll all be reminded of over the next several days of uh, freedom and liberty and uh, all the different great aspects to our nation that, that often are accompanied with these celebrations, but then the actual celebration itself, the apple pie and barbecue and fireworks and Lee Greenwood's I'm Proud to Be an American, right? A song that has been kind of the mantra of this week since 1984. Uh, what is it in your life that has helped shape your view of what it means to be an American? I think when I, when I reflect upon it, probably most of that was fostered at a very early age. I think I've mentioned this in the past before, but Growing up, our neighborhood, we always did a 4th of July parade. <clears throat> and that was always a lot of fun because as a kid, you could decorate your bike. Maybe your family would decorate the car and then everybody in the neighborhood would wake up and we'd kind of create our own little makeshift parade around our neighborhood and it would end at the neighborhood pool and we'd spend all afternoon, you know, watermelon seeds, spitting contests that Warren mentioned earlier, games, apple pie, swimming, just all of it. And then you'd watch fireworks that night. And I loved every single bit of it. It was great. And so as a young kid, that was kind of one of the earliest things that shaped <clears throat> in my mind. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I'll, I'll clear it here before too long. Um, that, that was, uh, those were some of the memories that really shaped early in my childhood what it means to be an American. It was a very positive experience. It was a lot of fun. Now, as I grew older, uh, there was a little bit more depth, a little bit more maturity that I think coincided with that. Probably the next level of development was really grasping and understanding that my grandfather had fought in World War II in the army and recognizing that he really sacrificed a great deal to secure the freedoms that I was able to celebrate. And so there was a deeper appreciation for that as I got older. And then, and then just other milestones through the course of my life as I've gone into adulthood. I remember the first presidential election uh, that I voted in, uh, ironically, was the, the election between Bush and Gore that had all the controversies for the hanging chads. Y'all remember that? Uh, the Florida recounts. And so I remember walking through the student union at OU's campus and this constant coverage of the election and 
recounting the votes in Florida and just thinking like, wow, my first election that I ever participated in was somewhat historic. Uh, I, obviously, shortly thereafter, a year or two after that, September 11th <clears throat> was very life-shaping in my understanding of what it means to be an American. That, that was such a jarring experience. I remember uh, walking on campus and thinking about it and reflecting upon uh, just the courage that my grandfather had demonstrated and, and the, the strength that he demonstrated to go and fight for these freedoms. And for the first time in my life, empathizing with that and thinking to myself, yeah, I, I can see why somebody would be motivated to go defend the country they love. And that was a very new experience and, and it also kind of shaped my view of what it means to be an American. And then just other milestones. I, I remember 2008 and, and President Obama being elected and, and just sitting there watching that moment, realizing that regardless of your political leaning, whether you voted for him or not, there was a historic moment to see the first black president elected in our country. And, and so there are these, these milestones that we've, we've all experienced through the course of our lives that have helped influence our answer to that question. Uh, what does it mean to us to be an American? Now, what I think we also can all probably recognize is that it's easy for us to possibly look back on our lives um, and find many things that we would consider to be favorable, right? Things that we've experienced in this country that, that are pleasing, that are good, that are, that are favorable experiences. We also probably have a list of moments in our nation's history that create an unfavorable perception, be it as far back as the history of, of slavery or the Civil War, Civil Rights Movement, or uh, protests in Vietnam, corruption, Watergate. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of all these things that we also see in our nation's history that are somewhat unfavorable. So the point is, is that when I ask the question, what's your, what does it mean to you to be an American? Um, I would be willing to bet that there is a, a diverse way in which people might answer that and think about that. That, that on the spectrum, it could, it could vary from those that would say they're proud and those that would say there are times that they're embarrassed and then everything in between. And to substantiate that claim, let me just tell you, I came across a, a poll recently that was done by Gallup and the question that they had asked uh, those that they had polled was, what do you believe is Americans' perception or the, the world's perception of Americans? And they gave them a spectrum. Uh, between favorable and unfavorable, and it was like very favorable, somewhat favorable, somewhat unfavorable, or very unfavorable. Okay, so there were like four different answers. But when they looked at the broad categorization of it, here were the results. As recently as, I believe it was February of 2023, I know it was this year, but I think it was February, uh, was that 49% of the respondents said that they felt like the rest of the world viewed Americans favorably. And 51% felt like the rest of the world viewed Americans as unfavorably. So it was 49 to 51. Does this surprise anyone in here today? Right, that that different perspective uh, of how we see ourselves or how we think the world sees us is split. That there's, there's a different point of view. There, there's kind of a, a different sentiment. And I think that we can all recognize that the reason for that is because we live in a very polarized political climate. And so depending on the issue, depending on the subject, depending on uh, how you feel on particular situations that are facing our government, facing our politics, facing our country, you may have favorable feelings or unfavorable feelings. And those feelings may be very different from the person next to you. And so I want to I bring this to life 
for a little bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create some discomfort, okay? Well, what I think will be some discomfort. Um, I, I want to bring this out of the uh, kind of the, the easy celebratory spirit that often accompanies the 4th of July where we, we kind of celebrate the high-level foundational principles of democracy and freedom and, and all, liberty and all those different things. And let, let's just kind of merge this question, what does it mean to you to be an American by the relevant subjects that we see on a, on a daily basis, okay? And so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna read off a list of, of words, subjects, topics, individuals uh, that we often hear in the discussion on politics today. And I want you to be cognizant of the way that it makes you feel and how you typically respond. Maybe not in church where we're, you know, we're in a good spirit today, but when you encounter these subjects on a daily basis, how does this typically make you feel? And so here's how I came up with this list. I, I literally just searched political headlines. That's an interesting journey. Um, and I tried to do it from a, a mixture of sources, and I just extracted the subjects that we see in political headlines today, okay? So I'm just gonna read them to you. Be mindful of how it makes you feel. Uh, inflation, Ukraine, NATO, Putin, China, Supreme Court, affirmative action, religious liberties, abortion, immigration, global warming, gun control, the NRA, LGBTQ, gender-affirming care, Black Lives Matter, Dominion, January 6th, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, Tucker Carlson, Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, indictment, impeachment, liberal, conservative. Coincidentally, this is also going to be the uh, sermon list for the fall. Uh, <laughs> just kidding, I would never do that to you. And these are the subjects that, that tend to create very uh, uh, visceral reactions. And depending on how things are being handled in the world of politics, you can see uh, your response to those subjects is either favorable or unfavorable. And, and it's usually these subjects that create a tremendous amount of contention and division in, in our world and in our country today. And so we have to be mindful of what does our view, our responses to these things, how does it shape our feeling of what it means to be an American? Because the reality is, is that the way in which you respond to those subjects is driven by your convictions, right? Certain political views, uh, political ideologies. And, and so we, we hold tightly to these political ideologies, these political views, and then it shapes our reaction to those different subjects, and then it shapes our understanding of what it means to be an American. And so here's my question. When you hear those subjects and you encounter those headlines, do you respond under what mindset? As a Republican? As a Democrat? Like as a liberal? As a conservative? As a patriot? As a progressive? Or as a believer? Do you see the difference between the two? Or do you even believe there's a difference? See, here's the better question. It's not just what does it mean to you to be an American, but how does your faith inform what it means to you to be an American? And that's what we get a chance to dive into today. Uh, that's what Romans 13 brings to light, is how does our faith 
inform our response to the governing authorities. And my hope is that as we work through Romans 13, we are able to somewhat disentangle the feelings, the emotions, the sentiments that we often carry into the political arena, and we can better answer this other question of how does our faith inform our response? And in so doing, we will find the opportunity to grow in our understanding of what does it mean to truly let the light of Christ illuminate a darkened world. And that's what we're going to try to do together today. So grab your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 13. Now, as you're turning there again, if you're a guest or you're a visitor with us today, uh, politics is not a regular topic of conversation for our sermons. It is where we fall right now in our journey through Romans. We've been going through Romans for the last, uh, gosh, almost a year and a half. I think it'll be when it's all said and done. And so we are now in Romans 13. Special word of thanks to Sam Parrish for leading us through the second half of Romans chapter 12 last week. He did a great job. And uh, grateful that when I step away, or in particular situations, we have such a great team of teachers that can step in and lead and to facilitate uh, up here on a Sunday morning. Sam did a great job, took on, what was it, Sam, 33 commands, I believe, in the second half of chapter 12, uh, and did a, did a great job with it. Now, that was also indicative of something that I want to do to set expectations as we move into the summer, is the pace with which we are going to finish off this letter. Anytime you do kind of this, this scripture-driven preaching, uh, where you just pick a passage or you pick a text, and you start to work through it systematically, you have to ask yourself, how quickly do I want to go through this? Uh, because the scripture is so rich that you could really slow down and take your time and, and take a tremendous amount of time to get through Romans. It'll end up being about a year and a half for us, but we could have easily taken four, five, six years. I didn't want to do that to you. And so in order for us to get through it uh, before the next school year starts here by mid-August, we're going to move with a quicker pace. Uh, we're about to tackle all of chapter 13 today. We're going to tackle all of chapter 14 next week. And then we're going to take two weeks each to cover 15 and 16. And that'll get us done by the time the school year starts. So we're moving with a quicker pace now uh, than what we've done in the past year or so. And the reason for that is not just to, to meet this deadline or to meet this goal, to have some other opportunities and flexibilities going into the school year. But there is some value at sometimes reading through it a little bit more quickly. When you slow down and you begin to parse every single word, every single verse, there is a richness that you can uncover. And I do think there is a tremendous amount of value in doing that when you study the text. However, what can happen when you slow down is that at some point it becomes difficult to see the forest through the trees, doesn't it? And you have to stop and go, now wait, what are we even talking about here? You, you can go off on so many different tangents. And so one of the benefits of taking on a more scripture in a larger chunk is you, you kind of have to do the highlights and you are better able to see kind of the main ideas and the main themes. And so I want you to have that in mind as we start walking through these last few chapters, that that's the, the rhythm, the pace, and the approach that we're going to take with these scriptures. What are the main ideas, the main themes that we can extract as we read this passage together? Does that make sense? Okay. So chapter 13 today, we're going to break it down into three sections. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in the first seven verses, which is all I'm going to read to you right now, and then we'll make it through these last two paragraphs towards the end of the message. So let's start in chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? 
Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Okay, let's stop there for a second. All right, so now we have Paul turning his attention to the political arena, to the governing authorities. And the first question I want us to ask ourselves is why? Why now? Why is Paul bringing this subject up? Didn't, didn't he learn in seminary, like, you're not supposed to preach on politics? Did they not cover that with him? Why is he all of a sudden bringing this up here in Romans chapter 13? Well, there, there are several key contextual factors that I want to make sure that we're aware of as we begin to dive into today. Uh, and we're going to with a narrow focus and then kind of work our way out from there to, to consider this context. Here's, here's the first thing that I want us to see. When you consider this context with, within the letter of the, of the letter to the Romans, chapter 12 has created a definite shift, correct? Uh, I told you that, uh, uh, what, two or three weeks ago when we started chapter 12, that when you get to chapter 12, he's finished his exploration into the mercy of God, and now his whole, his whole point is, what is your response to the mercy of God? How does this impact your daily life? This is courageous living. That, that, that's ultimately the, the thrust of the last four chapters, five chapters of the book of Romans. And so naturally, when you start thinking about how does this impact daily life, at some point, he's going to hit on the subject of your response to the governing authorities. Now, it correlates in many respects to the end of chapter 12, because in chapter 12, I believe it's verse 18, you have this admonition for uh, Paul to say, live, if it possible, live at peace with everyone. And that's going to include peace towards the governing authorities. And, and even that spirit of bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, all these things that we heard last week, that's going to have a direct impact in your response to the governing authorities. And so this makes sense based on the continuation even just from chapter 12. But I want you to zoom out even further and consider the New Testament teaching as a whole. Uh, when you consider the question of what is the believer's response to the government, to governing authorities, to politics, this is not an isolated question. This is not just specific to the church in Rome. We see this addressed time and time again throughout the New Testament. Uh, and so let me just give you a few examples. Jesus references it, I believe in Matthew 22, where he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Titus chapter three, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle towards everyone. First Peter chapter two, verses 13 through 14, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. First Timothy chapter two, one and two. I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So the New Testament consistently speaks to this issue as well. And you'll see similar themes in those passages that you find in Romans 13. Uh, this call towards submission, uh, to subject yourself to the governing authorities. This call towards living at peace. 
a, a call towards praying for those in authority. So, so you see a consistency across the New Testament that tells us that when we read Romans 13, this is a gospel issue, right? Like this is not just a specific historical moment. Now, that being said, that is another element of the context that I want to call your attention to is what was going on at this particular moment for the church in Rome. That what you can see at that point in time is that there was obviously an angst and a sentiment within the Judaic community uh, that was felt because they were under Roman rule. And, and there was a movement consistently amongst the Jews to rebel against that Roman rule, to anticipate a time where they would no longer be under Roman rule. And so a lot of those movements were violent in nature. They, they were uh, strategic in nature. They were political in nature. Uh, this is the zealots. And, and so what you see is that at that point in time, there would have been pressure within the Judaic community, and now, even as believers, probably some Gentile sympathizers who would look in on that situation and begin to question, how are we supposed to respond to Roman rule? And, and you see throughout the course of early church history, Claudius even here, probably in, in a more direct time where, where Jews are being kicked out of Rome because of their anticipation of being set free from Roman rule. And so the church is asking, what are we supposed to do? And part of what Jesus demonstrates, and Paul more or less reiterates with the passage like this one, is that this is never a call to join in a rebellion. Like, you don't see that in any of the New Testament passages. Take up arms, start a revolution. That is not the movement of a believer. Right? And, and so part of what he's addressing is, what are we supposed to do, Paul? What, are, what am I supposed to do with this pressure? Should I go join these zealots? Do I need to be a part of this rebellious movement to overthrow this political rule? Right? And so he's addressing the historical moment. Now, couple with that also the question of Judaic identity. This would have been equally difficult for Jews because if you look at the Old Testament narrative, you understand the Judaic history, part of what we see is that, that Jews uh, fused all of it together. Right? It wasn't just a racial identity, it wasn't just an ethnic identity, it wasn't just a religious identity, it was political and social as well. And so from the very beginning, when God brings them up out of Egypt and establishes his own people, he, he establishes a theocracy, which is essentially, I'm going to govern and order your whole existence, every way of life, it is going to speak to all of it, but God was supposed to be the ruler. And the deviation from that plan comes when the people of Israel come to Samuel and they say, we want a king. We want a ruler. We want a governing authority other than God. And Samuel says, you don't want this. And they say, no, we do. And you can see how the history of the Jews is marred with that new pursuit of power. Now, what you look at throughout the course of the Judaic history is that there were times where they had the power and times where they didn't. Times where they lived in control and in sovereignty and times where they lived in exile. Now what's interesting is that when they lived in exile, they were still able to claim oftentimes some sort of ethnic pri uh, privileges based on their ethnic minority um, identity so that even under Roman rule, even in exile, they had certain abilities to maintain this cultural identity. And so that's what was happening in Rome is, hey, because we're Jews, because we are this ethnic minority, give us these certain political privileges to function and exist in a certain way. Well, chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul just dismantled the importance of their ethnic identity. 
and, and how they see themselves as the people of God. Totally uh, deconstructed it. And so now they're sitting there going, well, what does this mean? You're threatening these privileges that we can benefit from in the political arena. Right? If that identity doesn't matter anymore, then, then how do we respond to the governing authority around us? So these are all very important contextual questions that he's seeking to answer. Here's, here's the fifth one, and what I would argue is the most important one, and the one that's probably most applicable for us today. The other thing that Paul knows, and the rest of the New Testament tries to, to teach us, is that your response to politics, your response to governing authorities, has a significant impact on the spread of the gospel. Can I say that again? Like our response as believers to politics, to the governing authorities, has a significant impact on the spread of the gospel. He knows it, and he's got to teach us about it. And so when we approach this text, we, we don't have the luxury of saying, hey, we just got to set this topic aside. This one's too difficult for us to manage in today's climate. Like we have to recognize the importance so that we have our faith inform what it means for us to engage in the political arena. Okay, so with that being said, what are the themes? What are the main ideas that Paul has just laid out for us here in these first seven verses? Here's the first one, uh, submission. Let's just embrace this for a moment. One of the chief postures of the believer is submission. And that's difficult for us but that is, that is a fundamental aspect to what it means to be a believer, right? It, it is the posture of those who follow a suffering servant who washed his disciples' feet and gave his life on the cross, who has called us to not to, ser to be served, but to serve. That's the example. And we, we struggle with that, don't we? We struggle with that because that idea often creates a significant tension with our understanding of what it means to be an American, right? Because what we understand um, from, from our upbringing, from, from all the things that we are taught and, and that we encounter is that there are certain inalienable rights that we have. And when you begin to have language that is centered around rights, and all these different things, what does that create? That's, that creates a certain spirit when it runs amok of entitlement, right? When you even break down the phrase, we are a government of the people, for the people, by the people, what that tends to create is the idea that the government submits to me, I don't need to submit to the government. And what Paul just said, and what the New Testament consistently teaches is, your posture to the governing authorities is submission, to voluntarily submit. And that, that can often run counterintuitive to what we feel is our right or our responsibility. And so we need to unpack what, what does that look like? Okay, how, how do we live that out? And, and first, we need to ask why. Why is that our posture? Why do we need to submit to governing authorities? And one of the answers we find here in this text is because those governing authorities have been established by God. And so when you rebel against the governing authorities, you are rebelling against what God has instituted. Okay, now I realize there's some complexity to this. We're going to get to the complexity in a moment. But let's, let's address the logic before we run to the complexity. Okay, so, so the idea is um, there, these authorities 
the, the governing authorities, the political realms have been established and instituted by God. So, so they are in place, it says here, to help implement uh, certain things that God wants implemented. So uh, the wrongdoer can be punished. I think it says at one point that uh, they are servants of God so that they can punish the wrongdoer. They can commend those who do well. And so God has established this level of authority, this order, so that there can be uh, natural consequences for right and wrong. Now, let's just embrace the logic for that. And I think one of the ways that we can better understand that is to extract this idea out of the political arena and put it in something that's a little bit easier for us to get our mind wrapped around as to why this makes sense, okay? So let's take it out of politics for a moment and let's put it in the classroom just for a moment. Uh, this idea of, of submitting to authority makes a lot of sense, but the way it's been outlined here when you just put it in a simpler environment. So for example, a teacher has authority in a classroom. That authority was granted to him or her, correct? Like nobody just gets to walk into a school and be like, I get to teach today. Like there is a process, there's education, there's credentials, there's an interview, a principal, there's a higher authority that invests that that responsibility to that teacher that then allows them to step into that arena. And so now you have these teachers in different classroom arenas, this authority that's been given to them, and part of what they're there to do is not just to educate, but to, to establish rules and expectations for the students. And guess what? Those rules vary from one classroom to the next, don't they? You got some teachers that are like, yeah, sit wherever you want, take your shoes off, read over here. And you got others like, you're going to sit right here. You're not going to make a sound. Put your hand up and you're going to rate. I mean, you've got different personalities in different ways that those rules are offered in those classrooms. And so what do students eventually learn? If you want to live in fear of your teacher, then just keep disobeying those rules and see what happens. That, that teacher has been given the authority to discipline you in those moments, to level consequences against you for any sort of disobedience. You want to live on the good side of the teacher? Obey those rules, right? D don't, don't go against it. And if you do, you'll be commended for it. This is logical, correct? And that's essentially what Paul has just said. This is how it works. There is authority that has been given in these governments, and if you want to live in fear, then go against it. If you want to be commended, then obey. And, and it makes sense. Okay, so that's the logic to the text. Here's the complication that we all can see and feel. It's staring us right in the face. What do you do with tyrannical, oppressive government? Or what do you do when governments conflict with God's word? How do we rationalize that? And there's a lot of problems with this that lead to a consistent misinterpretation and misapplication of Romans 13. Okay, so I want to make sure we, we understand this as clearly as we can. One of the ways that people uh, address this complexity is they'll look at Romans 13 and they'll say, okay, well, this really is only speaking about the ideal government, right? Or it's just authority in general. And so in, a, in an ideal situation where the government is good and things are going well, then this is how you need to, to submit. This is how you would follow along. And, and they, they kind of... Uh, alleviate, eliminate some of the weight of Romans 13. The reason I take issue with that, um, and the reason I think that's problematic, is that if we only apply Romans 13 to what we consider to be the ideal or good government, then who gets to decide what the ideal and good government is? Because now all of a sudden, the moment we don't like whatever authority is over us, 
we can say, well, I don't have to submit to it because it's less than ideal. Right? And, and God is going to remove that government until an ideal one is put in place. And that's actually the strategy of tyrants. Because now I get to be the representative of God's will. God wants to establish me in power. And that's where Christian nationalism begins to take root. So you got to be careful with this idea that this is only for good governments and we got to wait for the right leader to be put in place to instill that good government. And if it's not a good government, then I don't have to follow suit. That's a dangerous way to interpret Romans 13. But there's a problem on the other side, isn't there? Because if we say no, every government is actually ordained and established by God, then that calls into question God's character, doesn't it? Because there's some tyrannical, oppressive governments out there, isn't there? And you gotta think to yourself, why in the world would God put those sorts of people in power, those sorts of systems in place? That's harder to answer, but I think that's what we have to recognize for a moment. Here's, Here's how I believe this passage works by understanding that even in those situations, the instructions are the same. The first thing that you have to keep in mind in the full teaching of Scripture is that God has a plan. Can I say that again? We, we did a whole series on that by going through Romans 9 through 11. God has a plan. So when you, when you look at the teachings of, of Scripture, you can see moments where God absolutely rescues his people. And he raises up Israel, like he rescues them from Pharaoh. And you can find just as many moments where he raises up Babylon. That he puts David on a throne, and he puts King Nebuchadnezzar on a throne. So so what we see is that whether the, the, the ruler is noble or innoble, God uses them for his purposes. Think about Jesus' exchange with Pilate. Right, Pilate says to him, don't you know that I have the authority to spare your life? And what's Jesus' response? You would have no authority except what God has given to you. And what Jesus recognizes and what you and I can recognize in that moment is that part of the whole reason Rome is in power is so that Jesus could be crucified. So we don't always understand it. We don't have the same lens, the same view, but we need to recognize that God establishes the rule and the reign of all these different people, all these different places, because he has a plan. Let me bring it into a modern day example. Uh, You remember when ISIS was taking momentum there in the Middle East? As terrible as that was in so many situations, you know what you would also find during that movement was that the greatest awakening within the Christian church was happening in the Middle East. You want to talk about China and the oppression there and and some of the regulations and restrictions there? China continues to be one of the greatest movements of Christian awakening right now. So, So we look at it through a certain lens. God looks at it through another lens. He has a plan. So part of this is just trusting his plan. Now, the second part of this that is so critically important for us when we read Romans 13 is to not lose sight of the gospel. Here's the essence of the gospel. You ready? Jesus is king. He's given you your ruler. He's given you your king. He's given you the authority that you are to worship, and you should rest secure in the reign and the supremacy of Christ. Your hope is not in an earthly king, ever. 
And he knows that. That's the essence of the gospel. Submission does not equate to worship. And so part of what we do is we don't look for some person to step into a hall of power as if they are the answer for freedom and safety and rescue and redemption that only comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus is our king. And so he knows that. And and so our loyalty, our submission is ultimately to Christ, not to the worship of some governing authority. I can submit to them knowing that God has a plan and trust that it's not going to steal my affections or my worship. Now, here's where that becomes complicated. Well, what if the person in control begins to command certain things of their citizens that are contrary to God's word? Now what do you do? Now, how do you reconcile that? Well, again, let's consult the fullness of Scripture. And I think what we'll see over and over again is that Scripture teaches very clearly you are not to put the commands of man over the commands of God. There are numerous examples. You could go to the apostles as they begin to spread uh, the message of the gospel. And what happens? They're thrown in prison. The governing authorities begin to persecute them, throw them in prison. What do the governing authorities do? They say, stop talking about this man, Jesus. And what do they What do they say? They go, okay, you're right. You're the, you're the governing authority. You represent all of God's plans, so I've got to be quiet now. They say, listen, what's better for us to follow the commands of man or the commands of God? We can't help but speak of that which we have seen and heard. Are you, my favorite, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, correct? Nebuchadnezzar builds this image of gold. He demands that all the citizens bow down and worship. Do they bow down and worship? Absolutely not. And they are brought into the presence of the king, and they say, We will not bow down to this image of gold. Our God is able to save us from the flames, but even if he doesn't, we will not worship. You can see time and time again that our loyalty is to the word of God. But notice what they didn't do. What the apostles didn't do, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't do was develop a thirst for power. They maintained a posture of submission. The point was that they expected the sword. They expected the persecution. They expected anything to come against them by living in defiance of the, uh, the reign authority, but that wasn't going to lead them to uh, go against God's command. And so when the sword came, they still maintained that posture of submission, which is pretty remarkable when you think about it. And this is where this movement begins to carry some momentum and begins to get some strength to it. Because when you see that as the posture of a believer, guess what happens? What happens is that it begins to illuminate the darkness of the tyrant and the oppressive system of governing authorities. Right, what we can see throughout the course of human history is that rather than trying to take up arms and take up swords, is that if you stand with the oppressed, if you stand with the marginalized, if you maintain this posture of understanding that Christ is king, that God has a plan, even if that persecution comes against you and you bless those who persecute you, entire governments have fallen as a result of such joyful and willing submission. It's pretty remarkable when you think about it. In fact, I came across uh, a quote that was written by Ernst Caseman, Uh, a German theologian, and this is how he writes it. He says, sometimes the Lord speaks more audibly out of prison cells and graves than out of the life of churches which congratulate themselves on their concordant with the state. (laughs) 
Wow. Sometimes the Lord speaks more audibly out of prison cells and graves than a fusion of power between church and the state. And so here are the implications for us, okay? Let me, let me hit the implications, then we'll quickly wrap up these last two sections. Here's how I would try to take this and apply it to the political climate today. Um, don't withdraw. Don't disengage. Right? That's, that's not what we're saying. We're not going to say, well, it's too controversial, it's too difficult, I'm just going to withdraw. Um, that's not what the text is arguing for. The way in which we exercise our freedom, our liberty, our power here in our country is to vote. So vote. Vote your conscience. Let your faith inform how you should vote, right? Let your faith inform how you want to get engaged and how you want to, to be involved, right? So engage in it, but maintain this appropriate posture, a posture of humility, a posture of submission, a posture that understands that no matter what happens, in the halls of Washington, or in Austin, or on a school board, or whatever, Jesus is king. No one can take him off his throne. Rest comfortably in that. Submit to that. And, and that posture of submission is given its strength by with what Paul offers next. Let's continue. Verses 8 through 10. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. So, so Paul ends his discussion on governing authorities to say, because you can submit to them, give to them what they're owed. If, if, they're, if you owe them taxes, if you owe them revenue, if you owe them respect, if you owe them honor, give to them what they're owed. Right? Don't, don't worry about it. Maintain that posture of submission. And he builds on that idea of what you owe to then expand it and say, let me tell you what you owe, not just the governing authorities, but what you owe everyone. The debt that never gets fully satisfied, what you always owe someone is your love. Like, that never stops. So let me break this down for us for a moment with this uh, understanding of the political concept for a moment, okay? Um, it doesn't matter if they take your guns or they fill the streets with them. It doesn't matter if they prohibit abortion or they make it incredibly accessible. It doesn't matter if gender-affirming care is prohibited or all over the place. It doesn't matter if the, if the economy is flourishing or if it's tanking. It doesn't matter if there's a Republican in the House or if there's a Democrat in the House. Regardless of the outcome, we owe everyone our love. Not the love that culture is trying to define. Not a conditional love that is only available to those who you agree with, but an unconditional love, a God-fearing, Christ-honoring love that clings to truth, that holds to the authority of the Scripture, that holds to it, but never loses a posture of compassion and servanthood because that's who we follow. We owe everyone our love. And we can do so because we know he's king. 
And he's called us to love the neighbor. So when you look at this paragraph right here, here's what he's done. He's referenced the Ten Commandments, but he's only taken the second half of the Ten Commandments, right? Because the first half is more the vertical orientation of the commands and how we love God, that we shouldn't have any other gods, we shouldn't take his name in vain, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy, all those different things. But then the last part of the commands, they begin to direct towards a horizontal relationship of how we treat other people. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't covet, all these different things. And he's reminding us that love, this horizontal love and how you treat others, it's all summed up. All those laws are summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus has defined for us who our neighbor is, hasn't he, in the parable of the Good Samaritan? Right? He, he, he brought that with full force, that your neighbor is not defined by race, by age, by gender, by political affinity or ideology. It is those who are near you. Right? And that's not a nearness in terms of just proximity. Right? That is the nearness in the sense of this, a nearness that your love can be felt. Here's what I mean by that. Yes, we are to love everyone, whatever that means, right? Absolutely, everyone, we, we shouldn't have a hatred towards anyone. But my point is, is that there is somebody on the other side of the world living somewhere in India that has no idea that I exist. And as a result, my love cannot be felt by them. Does that make sense? So when it says, love your neighbor, the emphasis is not just, well, who is my neighbor? The emphasis is, what does it mean to love? Love has to be felt. And so the neighbor are the people that you're going to see in your day-to-day, right? The people that you share schools with, that you share neighborhoods with, that you share churches with, that you, you come and you begin to have this proximity that allows your love to be felt. And so whether they have wronged you, whether they have offended you, whether you disagree with them, whether you don't know them, what you owe them is your love. That is the debt that is always outstanding. We are to love our neighbor. This is the first fruit of the Spirit. Paul has been begging his readers, if you are going to live in the Spirit and not by the flesh, what has to lead you is the posture of love. Submission and love. I'll close with this, last few verses. Do this. Understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, And do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. So I love this last uh, word of instruction. We're going to close with this. How do we maintain this posture of submission? How do we maintain this posture of love? Do this knowing that your salvation is nearer than ever before. His point is this. Jesus is on his way. And he creates this, this kind of picture of contrast between night and day. Those who live as if the night is still present, right, and all those deeds of darkness, and those who live as if they belong to the day, they belong to the light. And so his word of instruction is put on that armor of light. Don't live like you live in darkness. We don't know exactly when he will return. We don't know how long it will be, but what we know is that today is a day closer than it was yesterday, right? 
He is on his way, church. And so the final word that Paul offers to his readers that I would offer you today is he says, wake up. Don't be complacent about these things. Don't be complacent with your love. Don't be complacent with how you treat the world around us. Live with that alertness. Live with that desire to have that light shine. It matters. You know, we were thinking about this when listening to the the children's message earlier, and Martha was talking about the way that, uh, you know, light illuminates a room and keeps her from stepping on uh, the little cars and things like that, which I can resonate with that. Um, This to me is is the great image for us as we leave here today is when you think about uh, waking up kids. I don't know about your kids. Maybe your kids are like up and early, ready to rise, or what that was like for you when you had kids in your home. Uh, My kids, I wake them up in a lot of different ways. I'll try to sometimes be very nice about it. And and we'll walk in there and just kind of rub them on the back and pull the covers back a little bit. Hey, it's time to get up, whisper, you know. Um, and that's sometimes successful. Uh, but a lot of times I'll do that, I'll leave the room, and what do they do? They roll over, they stay asleep, they stay in the dark. And so if, if it gets to the point on any given morning that I really want to make sure that they wake up, you know what I do? I turn on the light. And whether I'm in the room or not, it eventually wakes them up. And, and that to me is kind of the image I want us to hold on to. Because my, my concern is that too often the church is engaging in politics like we live in the darkness. All right? Because of a thirst for power, because we don't love, because we whatever it is. And all that is is people stumbling around, stepping on things that hurt them. And if we really want to illuminate this darkened world, if we really want to wake people up, then we have to let our light shine through submission and through love. We good? (laughs) So, with that being said, as we leave here today, church, let your light shine, and let it shine for Christ, that it would illuminate this darkened world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you, and we pray that you would watch over us, protect us, and guide us. We thank you for governing authorities, We thank you for those that we agree with and those that we don't. We thank you for a a nation that allows us to celebrate freedom and liberty um, and all the joy that's going to come over the next few days. And yet, God, we also thank you that whether that existed or it didn't, you would still sit on your throne. So, Father, let our hearts be anchored in and trust uh, your rule, your reign, your plan, your authority above all else. Give us the wisdom to know what it means to live and in a sense of peace with everyone around us. Give us a sense to understand what it means to love everyone around us, holding fast to what is true, but never losing a posture of compassion. And God, give us a sense of what it means to illuminate this darkened world by letting the light of Christ shine in our lives. We thank you, Father, for who you are and all that you do for us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen.